every successful person got there by going through tough times. Success is a hard-ass teacher who likes to knock you around along that journey. You know, it takes real guts to not give up and keep going. We'll hear stories about failures and how these leaders flipped the script to create success. I'm John Schultz. Join me and let's discover how success is never really overnight. Welcome to the John Schultz Podcast. I have a friend, a great guest, and an all-around terrific person, uh, Rich Daly, who's executive chairman of the Broadridge Financial Solutions Company. It's a global fintech company, part of the S&P 500 Index. Rich, I've known you for a long time, and you know what I appreciate about you is just what you do and give back to the community and just your business. And Rich has been named uh, 2019 NACD Directorship 100, which is an annual list of the most influential people in the boardroom and on corporate governance. He's also the director of SIFMA Foundation, a financial literacy program that serves 600,000 students a year through a simulated stock market game. You've been honored on dozens of charities and a lot for children in need. And, you know, knowing you, that doesn't, you know, that makes total sense. So welcome to the podcast. Great to see you, John. Thanks for being on. So, Rich, your career has been amazing, but it always starts you know, earlier than people think. You've accomplished so much, but, you know, growing up, how would you describe yourself? You know, John, I, I grew up in um, a working collar area of Queens. Um, the area transitioned through the difficulties and I'll call it the prejudices of the 60s. It uh, became a minority area um, starting around when I was nine or 10 or so. Um, and, but I thought I had a great childhood. You know, a lot of people hear my story and say, oh man, you had such a rough childhood. But I was a, I was a ambitious hustler at a pretty young age. You know, I was mowing lawns at six or cleaning up gardens. I had forged working papers when I was nine. I used this guy, Jimmy Goldback's working papers. Um, I became a Newsday Carrier of the Year. And then I was busted at 11 because it was my picture and Jimmy Goldback's name. And uh, uh, when I got into high school, I realized that hustling probably wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to go. So I hit the books. And, you know, I tell people, so I, I went to Christ the King in Middle Village and I, I became, you know, at the top of my class, first of my class several times. And, you know, I, I tell people it really wasn't that impressive because I was the only guy not stoned. It was the 60s and Christ the King was a, a horrible drug abuse school. And, and the brothers really were trying to keep kids alive. So I was able to get a full scholarship to college. And I was very fortunate in that I had some great mentors, some great breaks along the way. And, and I'll also say I had the intestinal fortitude because I got knocked down many times. And the most important thing is to learn from it. But the most important thing is to get up and go at it again. So, all right. I mean, obviously, 
we have innate gifts that we're born with, right? And yours was, you know, having fortitude, being a hustler, and, and guess, you know, having a positive mindset. But, you know, what you just described is not easy, right? So, so how did you find these mentors, honestly? And how did they serve you in pushing you through a younger, in, in, you know, in your younger childhood? It's a, it's a, you know, we're going to get into a background here. So my wife's best friend, okay, um, and became her maid of honor. So I've been with Debbie since I've been 16. And we dated for seven years. We're married 47 years. I was at her best friend's house, also in Cambria Heights, Queens. And I met her father um, in my senior year of high school. I had the full scholarship. I was working on Jamaica Avenue in Queens and he came upstairs where he had part of his business in the basement of the house and part of his business um, in a store in New Hyde Park on Long Island. And he said to me, I like you, come work for me. And he was an amazing human being. He was an Italian Jew who left when the Nazis came in his Italy, his brother was killed by the Nazis. His brother was a professional mountain climber and he was helping Jews escape into Switzerland. Didn't have a bitter bone in his body. And he taught me an understanding of people and an understanding of life that very few people have. So again, this guy did not have a bitter bone in his body. If you could picture, and you have to be old enough to picture this, you know, he kind of looked like Don DeLuise and his standard line was Ive Mamma Mia. And, but he was pro people, pro energy. And this little picture framing store in New Hyde Park um, would have lines out the door every Saturday because it was almost like a sitcom to go to. And the husbands would come with the wives and people thought I was a Neil's son. And, and through there, I really developed a great understanding of people. I'll give you an example. I went there and the store was a mess. Okay. And I said, okay, let me clean up the front of the store. He said, no, you can't clean up the front of the store. Let me tell you a story. A friend of mine, we were down on Delancey Street where he moved from to New Hyde Park. And he said, he built a beautiful men's store and he's going broke. So he said, you know, Emil, you got to help me. All right. So Emil says, okay, you really want me to help you? Yeah, right, really. So he calls a lumber company, orders plywood. He covers up half the windows. Okay. He spray paints with a spray can due to death of owner sale. Okay. He starts taking the men's goods and throwing them on the floor. He puts 50% off on the window. Doesn't change a price. And the guy sells everything out. Okay. <laughs> So it's, it's understanding the mindset of people, all right? And it's trying to put yourself in their position. Everyone wants, if you're on Delancey Street, you want to bargain, okay? And I can tell you, so I get there, the only pictures in my house, John, was on my parents' pride and joy, a black and white Zenith console TV in our little 12 by 14 living room. And there was my communion picture and my sister's communion picture in a Woolworths frame, literally a Woolworths frame 
on top of that. So I knew nothing about art. I knew nothing about picture framing. So I go there and I'm in college now because I just started. I got long hair. I wear my jeans. He's teaching me the business. He says, okay. And there was an art store in the front of the store as well. And he says, okay, what did you pay for those jeans? I said, what? What did you pay for your jeans? I don't know, six, seven, eight bucks, whatever it was. So he takes, he comes back with paint from the front of the store and he starts putting paint on my jeans. And he says, okay, listen, when the woman whose husband cheated on her and her psychologist told her to take up art lessons and she can't pick a frame, I'm going to call out Richie the artist. All right. And I'll have... Whatever frame corner I have on this ugly picture, the top left, you look at it, you think, and then you say, oh, definitely the top left. Okay? And it was amazingly because, you know, I, I looked like I was a young artist with the paint on my pants. Okay? And so as time went on, I actually became passionate about certain art, Norman Rockwell in particular. Okay, who really was an artist, but an illustrator. And I actually took, even though I was a, a, a first a computer science major, and we can go into that, because I was told there were no jobs in computer science. Then I became a marketing major. I was at New York Institute of Technology. You know, the only people who taught marketing at MYIT were people who couldn't sell. Okay, and I, right. I confused marketing and sales back then. And then I heard there were jobs always in accounting. And I said, I love accounting. What is it? But going back, to a meal, I took the art classes and I started using things like the focal point and blend and actually started putting different pictures corners up on the frame because Emil's taste became not as good as mine. Okay. <laughs> and we go on the back and he's saying, you're making me nauseous. Okay. Stick with the plan. All right. So, but he would never cheat anyone. He trusted everyone. He loved young people. A young couple would come in and we had pictures on the wall. Now, these pictures were made in China, okay, on a conveyor belt. We paid $2 for a 24 by 36. They still sell them today, all right? And they'd be a conveyor belt. And somebody would paint the tree, somebody would paint the water, somebody would paint the art. And at the end, I'm sorry, a little house. And at the end, there was somebody with an American phone book putting names on the artwork. All right. And it would be local artist. Okay. And so for 24 by 36 framed was 40 bucks. And Emil, a young couple would come in. They don't have a lot of money. They're looking at it. They're deciding. Emil would say, do you like it? Well, we're not sure. He said, okay, take it home. Hang it up. See if you feel anything with it. Okay. Hold hands underneath it. Okay. <laughs> Does it make you feel better? All right. Then they would say, wow, okay, do you want a deposit? I don't need a deposit. You want my name? I don't need your name. Okay. And on occasion, that picture would not come back. I'd say to Emil, hey, what are we doing? He said, look, the world became a horrible place because people stopped trusting people. You will do better in life if you trust people. All right. And I believe in business. There's a trust dividend or a trust tax. I make our customers trust us, even if they violate the trust on their side. We don't stop trusting them. 
and it served us extraordinarily well. So Emil's life lessons, okay, about not being, you, how could you not be bitter about your brother being killed by the Nazis? I mean, it's, it's the most, we used to have customers come in, all right, and there were some Holocaust survivors, and they would make me bring the moldings up from the basement to show them that it wasn't made in Germany. It could be made in Sweden. It could be made in France. It couldn't be made in Germany. All right. And Emil had a 180 perspective. Life goes on. Okay. And the way we fix it is to love each other. And his cliche was, Richie, the most important thing in life is life. And I had some tough times in business and some people who wanted to crush me. And, and remembering that perspective. And then when we achieved some modest success, okay, remembering that perspective and giving back, okay, particularly to kids in needs, all right, has really been um, just a great vision for life. You know, I love that story. I love your passion for how you say it. And what we're going to talk about next, I can see why you did did what you did and pushed through all the different issues that we're going to talk about now in, in your in your business story, which is, you know, finding mentors and trusting that, you know, you can listen and learn from people that it doesn't always have to be you figuring it all out. Right. You, you'll, you'll learn so much from everyone you come in contact with, which is what's so amazing about life. So. You did hit the books. You did go to college. Uh, you know, you got out of college. You started your career in accounting, right? I know you always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Patience is, I think, a virtue. What kept you in accounting and, and being in, in these other companies for so long? Like, what was the chat? What, what was the reason that happened? Well, so... Let's, let's, let's go back to that. So, you know, I grew up very young. I had certain circumstances in my life that, that forced me to grow up very young. But again, I don't look back and say, you know, it wasn't a great childhood. Somebody once said to me on a professional level, you know, you were never a little boy. <clears throat> and, and, you know, they were implying that I didn't have a good childhood. And I said, listen, don't screw this up for me. I had a great childhood. Okay. <laughs> so don't convince me that I didn't. Okay. But you know, there were, there were very real issues. My mother is a blue collar Queens. If you had mental health issues, you were, you were toast. My mother was a manic depressive. Okay. Um, her doctor told her to get a new hat. Okay. It was the local internist. When I was 12, she would have successfully killed herself. If it wasn't for a neighbor in a queen store. had a key to the house and didn't like the conversation at the garbage cans in the driveway, you know, where, where it was almost a meeting place. Yeah. So, so I knew I had to be serious. I started by hustling Hitting the books made sense. When I was in college, you know, I'd already heard, so I became a computer science major because I heard those guys work for Grumman. 
made 25 grand a year and didn't get mugged. And it, you know, it sounded great to me. And I was naturally good at math. Um, at the end of the first semester, the, the, the head of the school, Dean of Computer Sciences said, you know, you'll be the best educated people on the unemployment line. That immediately got my attention because I wasn't here because I had some passion about something other than I needed to have a skill set and then I needed to figure out how to make a living with that skill set. And then hopefully I could figure out how to make a living on my own with that skill set. All right. So I went up and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look, so this is 1971. How many computers is the world commercial really going to need? And we're talking about the huge mainframes. So, you know, the government was starting. It was the IBM punch cards. And he estimated that on a commercial basis, only the largest of corporations would need them. Okay. So he estimated, you know, the world was going to need for business three to four dozen computers. And the rest would be the government and NASA. All right. So I wasn't in a position to argue with him. I was immediately at the placement office because of a meal and because of my growing up hustling newspapers, hustling lawns, hustling, shoveling snow, um, all of those things. I was naturally an extrovert and I was naturally a pretty good salesman. So marketing sounded like sales. So I'll go do that. A semester of that and I realized, okay, um, this just isn't going to work. All right. So I go back and I said, where are their jobs at the placement office? And they said, well, you know, accounting is kind of like the science of business. There's always jobs. I became an accountant. All right. Again, math, naturally good at it, a 4-0, yada, yada. So I decided, though, look, there's no way I'm going to risk doing this. So I had a full scholarship. I was on a path to graduate in three and a half years without, you know, I was taking 20 credits a semester and working full time for a meal, 50, 60 hours a week. All right. So there's no way I'm going to leave the chance doing this and then not getting a job. So I go to the placement office. I say, okay, how do you get a job? They say, well, the accounting firms recruit on campus. So I said, okay, great. When do they come? They said, well, they come, whatever it was, February. Okay. So I said, okay, put me on the list. So I said, well, you have to be graduating. I said, well, I am going to graduate. I'm just, you know, in my, I guess I was in my fourth semester. So she said, well, you have to be graduating. You only interview graduating students. And I saw in her bed next to her desk, she had this needle point. And John, this was the God worst needle point I'd ever seen. Because if you pull them too tight, instead of it being a square, it becomes a diamond. All right. So I looked at it. I saw oh, you do needle point. She said, oh, yeah, but it's not. Oh, no, no, no. This is pretty good. This is really good. So I said, you know, I, I can actually fix that, all right? And so she had a few more stitches. I said, okay, I'm going to come back tomorrow. You finish this tonight. Let me take it and straighten it out for you. So I bring it back to the shop, and Emil says, oh, my God, what is this? I said, Emil, don't ask questions. This is going to be perfect, all right? So I spent heaven knows how many hours, what you call blocking and tackling it, on a board to straighten it out. Okay. Then I put a beautiful frame. I put non-glare glass on it to cover up all the misstitches she had. And I brought it back to her. She said, oh, this is fantastic. What are I going to know? My gift. All right. But I need one thing. I need to be on that interview list. Okay. 
She said, oh, I said, look, just, you know, now it got there. Just put me on the list. So Arthur Anderson was the firm. So I go there and sure enough, okay, the guy sitting behind the desk lived in Syosset on Long Island. And it's the head of HR for New York, Arthur Anderson. And he's looking at my paperwork. And he looks at me, he says, when are you graduating? I said, well, it's really not when I'm graduating that matters. It's the fact that I've really done my research and Arthur Anderson's the Marine Corps Public Accounting. I know it's the firm for me and I wanna be an intern because I wanna have a job locked up before I graduate. He says, okay, but we, own, we don't hire interns. In public accounting, there's not that much work in the summer. And so, but how do you get on the list? So I said, well, let's not worry about the list, okay? Let's talk about Arthur Anderson, the Marine Corps, and I want to enlist, okay? I'm signing up. So finally, the guy gets me to tell a story about the picture frame, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, you know what? This is, this is pretty unique. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a full-time job now for when you graduate. I'm hiring you right now. You don't, go, you don't have to do the interviews in the city. I'm locking you up before the other firms get you. All right. And you don't even need to maintain a four row. Don't screw up. All right. And what it turned out, John, was that I was his trading places guy. So he was, you know, NYIT, they had not hired anyone from. He was so tired of the better schools. Okay. And kids going with an MBA and getting one year experience so they could legally get a CPA and then leaving. So I don't know if there was a dollar bet, but he went back and told the managing partner. And on the bottom of the form, he wrote, will either be a diamond in the rough or a complete unadulterated disaster. There's no possibility of anything in between. All right. So that's how I got into public accounting. I went there and the guy who made partner the fastest was a guy, Al Goldstein, in seven years. I graduated in three and a half, so I could actually be there in six and a half years. So I laid out a chart for myself where I needed to be over a period of six and a half years to make partner. Because coming from my background, a partner back then in 74 made like a hundred grand. And that was like just an unfathomable amount of money. And you were a partner, you owned something. So I thought, okay, this is gonna be my way to be an owner in something, and I'm going to do it in six and a half years. All right. So I went in and I learned two things there. One, I was told the only way you could ever get fired from Anderson in your first two years is to say you did something you didn't do, to say you verified something, what they called a tick mark. All right. So all of my street smarts and hustling from Queens, I had to now put a filter in front of because I wasn't gonna do anything that I didn't absolutely do, okay? Because this was my chance to, you know, you know, figuratively get to the other side of the tracks, all right? I love it. The other thing it's, it's, was, yeah. the other thing was that I wanted to be recognized. So, you know, your first year of Anderson or any firm, there's all this crap work, proofreading, weekends, inventories in Topeka, okay? And everyone would hide from HR on Fridays, okay?
everyone would hide at the end of the day because they didn't want to get stuck going to the printer till two in the morning to proofread something for ITT. I would go to HR and tell them, you people are derelict in your responsibilities. I have no work tonight. I have no work this weekend. There's got to be a crappy inventory somewhere. All right. So I wound up having the most chargeable hours in the New York office. And what I realized, you know, when I was there as a guy who had a street smart accounting background, okay, so the people who taught us had accounting practices during the day doing write-ups at delis and hardware stores versus, you know, if you went to Pickett, um, Wharton, all right, you were learning about, you know, how to do a merger for ITT. But when I was with these, there was always a manager or at least a senior accountant. And you had all this downtime on these crap assignments. So I'd be asking them, I'd be showing them what I'm working on and asking them, what about this? How does this work? How does that work? And it accomplished two things. And I tell young people this all the time. It made me better at what I needed to do. It's three things, actually. It differentiated me within Anderson as a wildly ambitious guy, all right, who literally had the most chargeable hours in the New York office in 1975, all right? And finally, it established me with these senior accountants and managers as someone they wanted on their job because it wasn't going to be someone who would complain about an 80-hour week. It was going to be someone, and by the way, I was getting paid overtime at straight time. So I wanted the money anyway. All right. So, and last thing, I needed the money regardless because I was making 15 grand a year off the books with Emil and 12 grand a year on the books at Anderson. And I realized I was working to no longer be in an area where you could easily get mugged. And I now realize every two weeks, the government was going to mug me for the rest of my life. <laughs> I wanted to go back to the cash world. So, so it was through that, that this guy, Gene Herman became a mentor. All right. And he showed me at the end of the first year, you know, the, the diamond in the rough activity. Okay. And, you know, in essence, he won his dollar bet. I found fraud in a major corporation, Tiger Group, based in Chicago, for the unit on Long Island, Tiger Leasing. And it was basically a Rule of 78's kiting scheme. They sold the business to Tiger on an earnout. They were literally leasing virtually every commercial plane in the world because they were upfronting the profits. And as long as they wrote more paper, everything was great. I couldn't get the rule of 78s to work. I went to the library. I got every book on it. The senior accountant who was yelling at me that I was incompetent three years before me put a check mark, a tick mark, next to saying it worked when it didn't. There was a guy in between us who went to Vietnam and then went to work. And those guys weren't going to take any crap from anyone. Okay. So I got Steve screaming at me, and this guy, John, says to me, you know, you seem like a smart guy. What's the problem? I said, I can't get it to work. And by the way, I was now doing the rule of 78s, at least five different calculations, none of which worked. 
So he said to me, you know what? I can't get it to work either. Let's go to the CFO. And the CFO starts screaming, I am so tired of getting you incompetent. I'm paraphrasing here to avoid the profanity. These incompetent, naive kids just put the damn tick mark next to it. And John said, Dick, okay? He's not naive. This doesn't work. Two days later, Wall Street Journal, it used to be the second column from the left, second article, Tiger Group Restatement, Fraud and Leasing Unit. Okay? So the street smarts and the intestinal fortitude and that line about the only way you can, because remember, everything in this point was to get me to Arthur Anderson. If I lost that, I was lost. Yep. So, and so everything to that point got me there and I became a rock star. Okay. So I was, I was the kid who found the fraud. All right. And it's a big, big deal. The partner on the account was let go, even though he wasn't on the account before that. All right. A lot of heads rolled. Yeah. Right? So you, you, you proved your, uh, your fortitude, like everything that you did throughout your whole life got you to that moment and you, uh, you weren't but afraid. It was, but it was all the moments up to that point. Yep. Um, you know, whether it be hustling as a kid, a meal in terms of quality of people, trust, okay, don't cross that line. Arthur Anderson, don't cross that line. And I grew up in an environment where crossing that line was SOP. All right. I mean, I went to school with kids whose dads were made guys. Um, I went to school where, you know, if you needed a part for your car, you didn't go to the auto parts store. You told one of your friends what you needed. Okay. And he, and he got it for you that night or for somebody else's car. All right. I called it midnight auto parts. <laughs> All right. So, so, I, I feel very blessed with that background, all right? And it also helps me keep in context dealing with people from every background and every aspect of life. Which, you know, you could see that through your career and just through your, your life all the way to now. So just to dial it up, because obviously, you know, you, you had this startup uh, in the proxy business, you know, you, you were raising the money, you had a partner, your partner obviously passed away, uh, and then you had to combine it with ADP. So what were the challenges of, of like getting through that moment and then pushing forward after, you know, you think it's one way and then it's another way? All right. So let's quickly get to that point. At Anderson, I didn't get promoted a year and a half early. And so on my chart, that was a problem. Um, Touche Ross, which became Deloitte, was in the building next to ours. And I had a friend and we would meet in the, in the, in the restaurant in the basement of the Huntington Quadrangle. And Joe would always come over and say, you should be working for me. All right. And when I didn't get promoted a year early, I went to another firm that didn't work out. Then I met with Joe and he told me the timeline 
I could get on to make partner. All right. And so I, I wound up with Touche, which ultimately became Deloitte. And so that background through Joe put me on the meaningful but challenged accounts. And I got put on a proxy startup. 38% was owned by John Pickett on the Islanders. All right. And at a point in time, it was clear, you know, they never filed a tax return. They, the numbers were on, on, a, on a million dollars of revenue. I booked $2 million of adjustments and they were losing money. It was an accountant's dream. So they asked me to go there in a financial capacity. I said, I wouldn't do it without equity. Back to, I'm going to own something. All right. And after debates, we agreed to an equity, an ability to get equity. All right. And I learned the proxy business there. Okay. They stumbled into it. All right. And it was a terrific need for society based on when street ownership versus certificate ownership was becoming the way to go forward back when the exchange couldn't, couldn't settle $10 million a day in trades. Think about that. $10 million. Yeah, it's crazy. Broad, Broadridge on our technology is doing 10 trillion a day right now. Trillion versus million. Yeah. Okay. And we skip right over a billion. So then when Pickett wound up getting divorced, we had an opportunity to sell a business because of something I had won with the regulators. The New York Law Journal was, why is every company in America required to use the Independent Election Corporation of America? All right. And it was disclosing the names of underlying holders who would agree to give up those names. We built a technology, it worked, and it served the entire industry. When we didn't agree to sell a business, all right, part of that agreement was through that period, I became COO and the original four founders, so I was the only non-founding owner, the original four founders became co-CEOs. And it took a majority of them to override me. Okay, not what you call a Harvard management structure, all right? And two of them didn't agree, even weren't even on speaking terms with the other two. When we were agreeing to sell, three of them agreed to hang in there, or to get two of them agreed who had 51% of the voting agreed to hang in there. And that meant my going back to being CFO, which ultimately led to my leaving. All right. And I went to work for our largest client on Wall Street, running the, I was senior vice president of operations at Thompson McKinnon. I was the youngest member of the board of Thompson McKinnon after I was there a year. But at Thompson McKinnon, which was a wirehouse at the time, which got taken over by Prudential Beige. At the time, I learned what my old company should have been doing and other opportunities we had. That's when I decided, okay, I'm going to let my non-compete work out. I was still owed a half a million bucks from my buyout of my equity. I didn't want to lose that. All right. When the, around September, after my non-compete was up in 87, I met with a guy who ran systems for me. And after I left, he left because he couldn't take it. 
the industry started to approach me, like Dick Grasso came to me and said, your former partners are going to embarrass themselves in the industry and your name keeps coming up. I didn't want to tell Dick what I was doing because I didn't want to lose my earn out. Okay, because I knew once it was that I was going to reappear, I could kiss the half a million goodbye. All right. And but I started writing the code with my backer. Okay, effectively in November, we had gotten through the 87 crash. All right. But I was like, okay, I want control of destiny and running a Wall Street operation is not giving me control of destiny. All right. For example, I reduced the cost of running that operation by eight million bucks. There was no more eight million to take out. I raised service levels and a guy on the repo desk lost the eight million in about 15 seconds the same year. So my one silver bullet, okay, got offset by a silver disaster, all right, or silver loss. So I was committed to do this. Artie told me in February that his cancer came out of remission and in April he passed away at 61. Now Artie introduced me to some folks who he introduced me to the wrong individual. Very wealthy, very successful, but viewed his contribution and mine as the same. I needed three million bucks to get it off the ground. It was a million and a half bucks each. My deal with Artie was he was putting up three million with Nick Brady. I had 51%, they had 49. Same deal Artie Long had in establishing DF King, right? It was fantastic. I met with the group that wanted to buy independent election, this guy, Chuck Leonard, who was at Dun and Bradstreet when they made the offer, which I very much wanted to happen. All right. And I asked them about doing it for the 3 million. And they said, no, let's buy independent back. All right. We offered 115 and they turned us down. <clears throat> we, then ADP had an offer on the table. ADP approached me because clients directed them to me. And the last thing I wanted to do was work for a company that didn't have a great reputation for paying people. I met with the president. He said, I'm going to change all that. And in addition to VNU, I was meeting with Venrock and, and Wertheim. Not Wertheim, I'm sorry. J.H. Whitney, okay, the first VC in New York, Jock Whitney's firm. And when that didn't work out, okay, I was trying to get the VNU deal done. I had a solid offer from ADP on the table, okay, which was based on the Whitney Venrock model of what it would be worth in five years. And now I was down to 18% with another 17 to get my management team. And in five years, they said it would be worth 25 million bucks. And my piece of that would be about 5 million bucks. All right. So ADP said, how about we get you the 6 million? Okay. But on an earn out, but you're capped at that. That was a bad trade I made. Okay. At the same time, they indemnified me for legal fees. That was a great trade I made because 
Paul Weiss advised him, there's nothing here, 100 or 200 grand, and it will go away. But it didn't go away because I was very quickly winning clients, okay, because I was a service animal, and and let's just say the client's perception was they weren't. I had ADP behind me, so I went from being David and Goliath because they threatened to sue me before I did anything with ADP, and that could be a problem, and it was Deba Voice. Deba Voice then subsequently resigned. Paul Weiss was threatening a Rule 11. I had a top Paul Weiss litigator. So I went from being David to Goliath, okay, overnight. I went from the slingshot to a very powerful warhead. I knew to keep an ADP engaged, I had to sign up clients, which I did. And I think ADP spent something like $7 million in legal fees. We never saw a judge, okay? I think my former partner spent something like $9 million, and we ultimately bought them for a fraction of what I offered two and a half years earlier. Now we're at the point where I started the business. The software development was in COBOL. My partners originally accused me of stealing their software. Their software was an assembler, and Paul Weiss hired an MIT expert whose quote was, if Rich Daly could convert assembler code to COBOL code, he'd be referring to Bill Gates as his poor partner on the West Coast. Right, exactly. Because, because back then, assembler code was the, was the absolute bane of corporate America's existence. They needed it. It was inflexible. You make a, ch- a change on line seven, and on line a million, something blows up. Okay? It was very machine efficient when machine time was what the cost of computers was. Now machine time is a joke. It's the people that write the code, that manage the code, that's where all the expenses. Okay? And then you add the cyber problems on top of it, which as we get to the future is why Rich Daly couldn't start this business again today, but was able to start it, okay, back in 1989. So Rich, you, you, you spun it out, you, you took it to this behemoth company, $20 billion company. You know, lots of people are gonna be watching this. You know, the, the myth overnight success, you are a true person to fit perfectly in this podcast. So, so tell me what you would tell someone today starting a business in, in, in to get to that scale. All right. So, so the myth of overnight success in this case was probably 40 years, all right, to really get it to become Broadridge, to get it to become, I think between 2010 and 2020, we were the 11th best performing company in the S&P 500. So we had... ADP, I had a terrible technical glitch in 1993, okay? We were growing like a weed, and it was a Wall Street Journal C1 story. ADP gets an E for errors. Now, that was the Business Week article, okay? It was proxy snafus in the Wall Street Journal. I was feeling, I was 40 years old that year. I was feeling really down on myself. By the way, my earnout was completely paid out. 
Okay. And I always thought I was going to leave when the earnout was up and then start something I completely controlled with that money. All right. And, but I tend to fall in love with the people, the business. And I was so down. I made my wife cancel a 40th birthday party. And what I learned in there was I still thought it was all about me. And, you know, once you start a business, it's about the team. And through that experience, when we brought people together and talked about what we needed to do, I looked around and I said, wow, these young people, okay, now I'm 40, but I'm hiring people out of school, okay? These young people are hurting as well because we know we're doing a good job, okay? And yet the world is saying we're not. So culture absolutely is critical, all right? The, I believe ultimately and unconditionally in the service profit chain, which is if you want to have a sustainable business model, okay, you got to start with your employees or what we call associates. They need to be the highest engaged in your space, okay? They need to feel that they're important. Right? It's not just comp. As a matter of fact, comp without them feeling engaged is a waste of comp. All right? And those highly engaged employees will meet or exceed customer expectations regularly. And those customers, okay, will stay with you longer. All right? Those customers will tell other customers and become apostles for you, all right? It gives you far better pricing power, far better renewal power. You know, Broadridge's renewal rate over this long period of time is 98%. That means the average life of a customer is 50 years, okay? When you read the analyst reports about Broadridge today, okay, um, Dave Togut at Evercore talks about his best safe haven because of the recurring revenue model. Okay. Well, the recurring revenue model is also tied to the retention of clients. All right. That's what makes the model so strong. All right. So engaging people started at ADP, but at Broadridge, when we had complete control of this, we took it to the next level. Now, this isn't not Nirvana, okay? When I started running a business, you know, my dad was a no high school degree, fixed cash registers for 52 and a half years. and the last 25, he was waiting to get laid off. It didn't create a happy household, all right? So I thought when I run a business, I'm never going to lay anyone off. Well, it doesn't work. Not everyone belongs in the company, but everyone should trust management to tell them where they stand, to tell them that they need to get their act together or to tell them that they're performing above average, all right? And to give them clear feedback. And managers need the intestinal fortitude to have clear feedback. We also use a Gallup scoring system to rate every leader at how well they engage their employees. All right. And we've transformed many leaders, including myself, 
Because I tend to talk about what we need to do versus celebrating what we've done right. All right. And I had to force myself to call what I used to call an obligatory 30 second celebration. Yeah. Okay. Before I went back to my to-do list. All right. So, and we had to tell certain absolute technical geniuses that if they couldn't engage their people, we would have to take them out of a leadership role. So, so I'm telling you, I know this works and I'm still stunned that most businesses are too short term. You'll hear people say, well, you know, we had to have this riff because we wouldn't have made our earnings. We have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. Okay. But so they justify it that way. But when someone quits to take a better offer, it's where's the loyalty? Where's right. the loyalty? Management stop being loyal before employees stop being loyal. I can unconditionally tell you that. All right. And everyone has a responsibility to provide for their family and to protect their family and themselves. So management, if you want to get your act together, you have a responsibility to engage people, let them know where they stand. All right. Do competitive analysis of compensation. All right. And without question, not treat people the same. I'm not, you know, diversity really matters. You know, growing up in the environment I did, I realized there's good people and bad people, and it has nothing to do with their race, their creed, or their gender. All right? Nothing. All right? And so the only bias I have is against negative, lazy people. Okay? And I know they don't belong in Broadridge. Maybe they should work somewhere that was a job for them. And helping them identify they don't fit is the right thing for them and us. And letting the top performers know they're a top performer. So if there's, like the news right now, we're heading into a tough economy. All right? Well, they shouldn't be worried about their job. Okay? We don't want them to be worried about their job. And I'm telling you, any time a company announces they're going to lay off 2% of the people... 99% of the people are worried. It's human nature. Well, what what I find is this total string of through your life of how you act is it's people. It's it's not being afraid to take chances. And it's just caring about the whole and something bigger than you. And that's why you scaled to a, a company of your size and it's unbelievable what you've done. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. You're, you're, you're so inspiring as a person and as a leader. And we appreciate, uh, you know, people that are going to be listening to this are going to love the story. John, if, you, if you're going to keep this up, you might as well say I'm so tall and thin as well. I mean, <laughs> listen, it, it, you know, I, I speak the truth. So I'm happy that you, uh, you were a guest. And thanks for being on. John, you're the best. Take care. Thank you. 